Welcome to your favorite Thursday podcast. I'm Nick Mitchell. And I'm Scott Tedford Barnes. And you are listening to Legends of Sportsball Halloween Sportacular, an educational celebration of useless chalk knowledge. Thank you for joining us. We have a very special episode for you today, don't we, Scotty? It's our first ever Halloween Sportacular. So scary. It's also National Internet Day. (laughs) Speaking of scary. Yeah, what is scarier than the internet? The internet will get you, kids. Speak of scary things on the internet, we have lots of scary things to talk to you about today. We've got our scoreboard stumper, we've got our hallow tweet of the week, we've got bobbing for assholes, uh, some campfire stories, and the torture chamber. So a bunch of new uh, formats that are just kind of twists on old formats that uh, hopefully will make for a very special episode. So why don't you kick us off... Uh, so why don't you kick us off with the scoreboard stumper, Scotty? Scoreboard sc- stumper is as follows. I want to know, who was in the on-deck circle when a black cat walked in front of the Cubs dugout in 1969? That is such a good one. Yeah. It actually, on Tuesday, October 27th, yeah. it was National Black Cat Day. Ooh. So perfect, perfect spooky trivia for this week. Good job, Scott. Um, we'll go ahead and move on to our hallow tweet of the week, Carlos Dunlap. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hit us with that one. Uh, Jeremy Rauch, uh, for Fox 19 Cincinnati tweeted, Carlos Dunlap leaves Cincinnati with 82.5 sacks. Eddie Edwards is franchise leader with 83.5 sacks. One sack short. Hashtag Bengals. One who day short. Bengals problems. <laughs> yeah I think I think that's a good way to spite him I guess <laughs> yeah we'll uh, just cut you short of that record we'll let you never be that legendary in the eyes of uh, Cincinnati Bengals history no no especially not with his behavior on the sideline this last Sunday so he was acting a fool over there and he caused a penalty yeah apparently he uh, posted he listed his house on the internet for sale. Yeah, my, my friend Michelle is a re- realtor and said, you know, Carlos, don't not hit me up. <laughs> Need an agent? <laughs> uh, Let me get your uh, autograph right here on this uh, yeah, page and this yeah. page and this page. Let, let me sell that for you. Well, perfect segue into uh, our next segment, Bobbing for Assholes. Yes. Um, uh, more commonly endearingly known as notable jabronis this is our little uh, halloween sportacular twist on it hit me with your asshole scotty <laughs> i'll hit you in the asshole uh, first uh let's go bobbing for justin turner now justin i know th- yeah i know the dodgers won the world series last night but uh after the game was over let's back up he tested positive for coronavirus the day of Game 6, the game in which they won the World Series. So he wasn't allowed to be in the facility or around the team at all. So as soon as the game was over, Justin Turner ran onto the field, breaking all the coronavirus po- po- protocols, and um, and even security guards tried to hold him back. Like They told him to leave the field multiple times, and he stayed there. It even has a picture of him with the trophy and everybody. Just no mask. What an asshole. 
Endanger your teammates. I know it's the World Series, but come on. Asshole indeed. Yes. The technology we have these days, we, they could make it look like he was there if they really needed to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can make it look like people are there, you know. They can make it make that happen. You got any more assholes we're bobbing for here? Yeah. Uh, Antonio Brown went bobbing for assholes earlier this week. <laughs> he, uh, he, he posted many videos with him and Russell Wilson from the Seahawks working out and lots of media speculation between, you know, you know the Seahawks are going to sign Antonio Brown. Like, this is duh. This is a no-doubter. You know, Pete Carroll will take a risk on this guy. Um, well, he made all of them look like assholes. And he signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers today. <laughs> Cheers on your new deal, Antonio Brown. Yeah. Bruce Arian says he looks fantastic. I think we really had a good conversation today. And so I guess Antonio Brown, I mean, more weapons for TB12. I'm surrounded by ass. Poor Seahawks. <laughs> There's poor Seahawks. She won't up, up on those assholes. Normally at this time we would be inducting someone into the Legends of Sports Ball Hall of Fame. But as part of this amazingly spectacular Halloween sportacular, we will be telling some campfire stories about athletes. Okay. Our first story is about Bo Diaz. Scotty, why don't you start us off with this one? Baudilio Jose Diaz was born March 23, 1953, in Cua, Miranda, Venezuela. At age 14, his Little League team were national champions that missed the Little League World Series because of an earthquake that devastated the city of Caracas that year. Diaz would sign with the Boston Red Sox organization as an amateur free agent when he was only 17. His final season in the minors... Diaz posted a 263 average with 14 doubles, 7 home runs, and 54 RBIs, prompting him to be called up to the majors. Pretty good numbers for a catcher, especially that would have been 1970? Or no. Yeah, if he was 17. Yeah, it's pretty good. <clears throat> Bo, as he came to be called, would make his Major League debut filling in for the legendary Carlton Fisk for the final two games of the 1977 season. In the offseason... Bo would be traded to the Cleveland Indians for the 1978 season. Bo played for two years in Cleveland, bouncing between a backup catching role and time in the minors, though he made the All-Star team in 79 after posting a batting average of 356 through June of that year. In 1981, Bodilio was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies, where he'd befriend legendary pitcher Steve Carlton. He caught Carlton's 300th career win in 83 and would help the pitcher secure a 20-win season and Cy Young honors for the 82 season. In 84, Bo hit the disabled list twice with knee issues, eventually undergoing two surgeries, and to top it off, he broke his wrist in 1985. Bo's time as a Philly was done, but his career wasn't, as he was traded to the Cincinnati Reds in 1985. Diaz played four seasons with the Reds during the forgettable portion of the 1980s for the Cincinnati club, though Bo was part of an unusual occurrence that has yet to be matched in baseball since. During the 86 campaign, Bo threw out giant speedster Robbie Thompson three times at second base in the fourth, sixth, and ninth innings. Thompson was also picked off at first by the pitcher in the 11th, making him the only player thrown out four times in one game. After more surgeries to his knees in 1989, Bo Diaz decided to retire at the end of the season. He was only 36 years old. 
Though out of the majors, Bo is playing for the Caracas Lions, attempting to get in shape for return to the big leagues. On November 23, 1990, Bo was adjusting his home satellite dish in Venezuela when the dish was knocked offline by high winds. The dish collapsed, crushing Diaz's neck and skull against the base of the dish. The coroner said that the impact must have killed Bo instantly. Marge Schott, owner of the Reds, was quoted saying, This is a tragedy. It really is. This is a shame. I was very close to his family. Baudilio Diaz was survived by his wife Maria and his two sons, Bo, Daniel, and Joshua. That's a sad one. He had a very interesting career. What's funny is he has these weird connections to Carlton Fisk and Steve Carlton. And when I was a kid, I would always get those two players mixed up because they were both before my time and had similar names and had played some time with the White Sox, I think. <laughs> That's a new band name. Steve Carlton Fisk. <laughs> the album's called Bo Diaz, because that's what connects them. <laughs> All right, well, rest in peace, Bo. Uh, we've got another story for you. This one is about Monica Seles. Monica Seles, a former professional tennis player, was born on December 2nd, 1973 in Yugoslavia. Monica is the youngest ever French Open champion, winning the title at the age of 16, and would win nine Grand Slam titles in her career. She won eight of those titles as a teenager representing Yugoslavia and her ninth representing the United States. Her dominance was on display as she reigned over the number one world ranking in 1991 and 1992, unseating a fan favorite, Steffi Graf. However, all of that would change on April 30th, 1993. At a quarterfinal in Hamburg, Germany, Monica was making quick work of her opponent, Magdalena Maliva. Take her a Maliva. Little to everyone's knowledge, an obsessed fanatic of Steffi Groff's moved, moved swiftly through the crowd with a boning knife, or like deboning fish. During the match changeover, where the players change sides and take a quick water break, there was suddenly a hair-raising shriek and commotion. At first, it wasn't clear what had taken place. Monica was visible, standing and clutching the back of her right shoulder and then collapsing and being surrounded by attendants. Her opponent covered her face with a towel and tear. Celis had been stabbed between the shoulder blades with a nine-inch knife. She would be placed on a stretcher, and the match would be given to Maliva. Though she would lose time recovering from the stabbing, Celis lost much more than blood to the would-be assailant. Monica wouldn't play tennis publicly or professionally for two and a half years due to PTSD, and lost her father to cancer in that time, adding to the mental anguish. About the incident, Celis wrote, I remember sitting there, toweling off, and then I leaned forward to take a sip of water. Our time was short and almost up. My mouth was dry. The cup had barely touched my lips when I felt a horrible pain in my back. My head whipped around towards where it hurt, and I saw a man wearing a baseball cap, a sneer across his face. His arms were raised above his head, and his hands were clutching a long knife. He started to lunge at me again. I didn't understand what was happening. Her attacker was Gunter Parsh who would not face prison time due to mental health concerns. Celis vowed to never play in Germany again due to Parsh's walking free. Celis would, Celis would only win one more major title at the Australian Open in 1996 and would eventually retire in 2003. Much of her career felt robbed, though she finished with numerous accolades and was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 2009. Yeah, so that's tragic, especially uh, someone as talented as she was. Really, she was like, um, I want to say, almost like a LeBron James of her sport. 
until she got cut down, she was, you know, very competitive at a very young age and was, you know, set, you know, winning at a remarkable rate or at a rate that had never really occurred at that time. And that was before the Williams sisters, too. So it was like at that time, it was like, oh, oh, shit, this girl can play. Um, yeah, we've got one more um, campfire story for you. This one is about Tim Cruz and Steve Olin. Stanley Timothy Cruz was born on April 3, 1961 in Tampa, Florida. Tim, as he liked to be called, would go on to pitch for the Los Angeles Dodgers from 1987 to 1992, winning a World Series with the club in 88 before being traded to the Cleveland Indians in 1993. Stephen Robert Olin was born October 4, 1965 in Portland, Oregon, and grew up near Beaverton. Olin was a submarining type of thrower, and his unconventional method earned him a spot as a relief pitcher for the Cleveland Indians in 1988. He stayed with the team the entirety of his career. Now teammates, Cruz, Olin, and fellow Indians pitcher Bob Ojeda decided to have a day together during spring training on March 23, 1993. The three were headed out to go fishing on Lake Little Nelly in Claremont, Florida, after a long day of barbecuing and drinking together. Tim's wife, Lori, said that they were excited to go out and find gators in the lake that night. A real bonding experience. The three disembarked from Cruz's home in a bass fishing boat sometime around 7.30 p.m. and were on their way when they struck a long dock. They smashed into the dock, and the dock met them chest high shearing three wooden posts and instantly claiming the life of Steve Olin. Cruz, who had been driving, had a blood alcohol content of 1.4, died the next morning. Bob Ojeda narrowly, narrowly escaped death with head injuries. Through tears, Olin's mother stated, He had heaven right here on earth. He had Patty and these sweet babies. I can't see him looking down on this scene and thinking he is in a better place. The grieving process was difficult, even career-ending for Ojeda, who rarely speaks of the incident. Ojeda said that he had constant flashbacks, saying, The best way to describe that time for me was dread. I was at the bottom of a black pit with no way out. Tim Cruz was 31 years old. Steve Olin was just 27. Now, for me, I remember, uh, yeah, I mean, I was nine years old at that point, and that was uh, one of the first major stories that I can remember where I was like really into sports and... Just seeing something like that, I just, it, it was pretty, um, it was pretty eye-raising for me at that point, just to uh, hear the news of that, and, you know, uh, one of the first times you really contemplate death and how fragile, the fragility of life, so to speak. See, I don't remember that one. See, my, my dad liked to watch women's tennis because he just liked looking at hot women <laughs> tennis players. So I knew the Monica <laughs> Sella story. <laughs> well, we'll do Anna Kornikova here soon. got to get her involved. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this new segment, as dreary as it is. Hope you appreciate it for these um, Halloween sportacular times. Um, <coughs> we'll move on to... The answer to our scoreboard stumper, Scotty. Right. So I wanted to, wanted to know who was in the on deck circle when a black cat walked in front of the Cubs dugout in 1969. 
I don't know. It was Ron Santo. Man, it was probably like <laughs> the only guy on that team. That, you know, it was like the only guy that anybody from nowadays would even know who that is. I mean, the the pictures are really kind of cool to see of that. I mean, the black and white pictures, it is kind of eerie to see because that black cat did curse them for another, what, another 40 years almost. Until Chapman came along and bailed him out. Yeah. <laughs> Still salty about former Red Oralist Chapman. The rocket. Getting the W. The Cuban missile. On the game that ended the um, the superstition. Um. Moving on to the torture chamber. Torture chamber. All right. First so one into the torture chamber. First in the tor- torture chamber, we're going to throw uh, a fan who lost $997,000 on the Monday night football game between the Bears and the Rams this last week. Um, after the game was over, they changed something from a sack to a tackle. And... Uh, I think he must have played, you know, like FanDuel or DraftKings or whatever. And he he had the Bears D, or, you know, it was or the Rams D, but it was changed. And just because of that, he's out $997,000. So he thought he won it. And then they made the adjustment at, over, after the game was over. There, there are two ways to look at that. You know, there's, there's fight or flight. There's, there's either fight, like I'm going to go find the official scorer of that football game and murder him or there's flight and you just chalk it up to maybe I shouldn't be putting $500,000 on such a, an, a small statistic or yeah. DraftKings isn't what, what the phrase when in Rome means <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Next through the torture chamber, we have, a regular on our program, Adam Gase, <laughs> head coach of the New York Jets. So if you are a regular listener, you would know that um, we claimed back in week four that he would be fired. Well, since we claimed that he would be fired, the Jets have been outscored 72 points to 20. <laughs> Scott, I choked. Almost, I choked. almost just spit his drink all over the room. <laughs> Um, uh, excuse me. So he may not have been fired, but please, please, you are torturing us. Um, let's just like move on. Just like rip it off like a bandaid. Like, can we just, you know, you don't have to get a new coach yet, but maybe just like say you're firing him. Maybe like lose the rest of the games and, 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 and I don't know, maybe trade a couple more players. They at least try, they at least traded Le'Veon Bell, you know, but like, let's move on. This is torture. Joe Flacco is the future. Uh, <laughs> clearly, um, but really, Adam Gase came to the, came to the Jets, and you know, usually in a certain amount of time, a team does progress and get better. They they've actually been in retrograde since he arrived, pretty much. I mean, I feel like it was the same deal with the Dolphins. I mean, the Dolphins were kind of strong when he got there, but I remember um, they were actually saying this the other day on uh, I don't remember where I heard it, but they said that uh, for a long time everyone said that Tannehill's success was because of Adam Gase. Like, look what Adam Gase has been to get, been able to get out of Ryan Tannehill. And now they're looking back and saying, look what Tannehill was actually able to do with Adam Gase. <laughs> all, all, the, all the adversity that Tannehill overcame. <laughs> you know, time, time tells a lot of things. So. I remember Tannehill as the quarterback when he was in 
when in uh, Miami as a dolphin, he started screaming at the guys on the practice squad for picking him off during practice. It's like it's their job to play defense, man. (laughs) (laughs) Explains a lot. But anyway, Uh, uh, you got another one. Yeah, I've got a person for the torture. Yeah, we'll throw him in the torture chamber. (laughs) We're gonna go with Matt Ryan. Um, Matt Ryan. Now I know Matt Ryan statistically has had a really good career. Uh, doesn't hurt to have you know Roddy White and Julio Jones to start your career with, but um, is that Steve Smith? Yeah, I mean a, a, be- Ridley. a bevy of backs. Mohamed no. Sanu. Mohamed Sanu, who's probably might be better a quarterback at this point. I don't know, but really, Matt Ryan hasn't been good record-wise since they lost to the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Since twenty-eight the, to three, they were twenty-eight to three. So. I mean, when does when does he leave? Or does he just torture himself for the rest of his time in Atlanta? I had this idea <laughs> that he should go to the Niners. Dan Patrick was saying he was go- gonna say that he should go somewhere, and then he took two days to actually get to it. And in that time, I predicted he would say the Niners because of Kyle Shanahan, and because for whatever reason, everyone's off the Jimmy Garoppolo bandwagon. Also, there's another one. Quit torturing us. By saying he's not a good quarterback and he's a great quarterback every week, he was like two plays away from being the Super Bowl winning quarterback. Like, let's be real. Okay, so I've got another one. Cam Akers. Cam Akers has been torturing people all season. He ended up being a very high draft pick, high fantasy draft pick, especially considering the numbers he's put up. Uh, he played a decent amount in week one and week two. He was injured and did not play week three, week four. Week five against Washington football team, he carried the ball nine times for 61 yards at a 6.8 yards per carry clip. After the game, McVay said he, that he swore he was going to use him more moving forward because he was clearly the most dominant and productive of the three running backs. In the two weeks since then, Cam Akers has been in the game for three snaps <laughs> and had zero carries. Cam Akers, you are torturing us. Yeah, I'm, I'm done in fantasy with the uh, running back by committee. It's just, even if he's not a great running back, if he is the only guy who gets carries for that team, he's more valuable than any of the three talented guys that another team has because their statistical output is so volatile. Just trade them to the Niners. Yeah. G- give give them a – I mean, you wouldn't do that. They need four more. If they're going to get through the rest of the season, the 49ers going to need like six more running backs. Yeah. At this rate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. I think we talked about them being part of the torture chamber too, the Niners and their running back situation. Yeah. They're down to practice squad players and whatnot. And they got they let, they let Brita go in the offseason. Yeah. And he has done nothing for the Dolphins. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, if you if you you know, you go call the Dolphins up and be like, "Hey, give us Breida back. Breida back. We'll give you like a second rounder That's or something." That's not a bad thought, right there. Scotty Barnes over here. He knows how to get out of torture. Yeah. Bring back Breida. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag bring back bring bring back Breida. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Ugh. Do you have any more people to run through the torture chamber? No. All right. Well. <clears throat> Don't forget to subscribe to our weekly podcast and check out our other episodes available on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, and more. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at L Sportsball. That's at the letter L Sportsball. 
Thank you once again for listening to Legends of Sports Ball. May the sports be with you. Always. <laughs>